0: Welcome to episode 163 of the Marvel Studios News Podcast. My name is Sean Gerber, not joined by Paul Herman for this episode. Paul is a little busy at the moment, so I'm going to fly solo on this one. And if you're following Paul on social, Twitter or Instagram, at Herman22 with two N's, then you're probably already aware of some of the big news going on in Paul's life at the moment. But as far as announcing it on the show, he should be the one who gets to share his big news. So I'm going to continue on this week. And what I'm going to talk about are a few different things. I am going to talk about the updated, again, Marvel Studios release schedule and just look at some of the takeaways from that information with things reshuffling again to accommodate a delay to the third Marvel Studios co-produced Spider-Man solo film. I'm also going to share and discuss a marvelous moment featuring Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. Black Widow. And the reason I'm going to do that is partly because what this episode was originally going to be As many of you are undoubtedly aware, this episode would have been our Black Widow spoiler review. The movie was going to come out on May 1st, so the show that's coming out, and I'm recording this on Monday, May 4th, if there had actually been a Black Widow movie, maybe we would have recorded this show on Sunday, May 3rd, and had it out on the evening of Sunday, May 3rd. After giving all of you the weekend, uh, a chance to see the movie on that opening weekend, we would be delivering our spoiler review as we normally do on this show. But of course, as we found out weeks ago, Black Widow has been postponed. It's not coming out until November 6th of this year. At least that's the current schedule, and I will be going over that Marvel Studios release slate. But I found myself last week in that lead up to Black Widow or that original release date, I found myself getting a little sad about it. And I, of course, know, as we all do, that it's not the biggest problem. It's far from it. It's not the big issue right now. But when we are fans of things and we look forward to things, it's okay to be disappointed. And I felt a little bit of that sadness last week. It started out actually pretty well because there was a lot of stuff going on with the anniversary of Avengers Endgame and how great it was to be in a theater for that film a year ago. And of course, I feel like I can go right back to those moments of being in packed theaters on opening night, throughout opening weekend, really the the whole first opening week of Avengers Endgame and what it was like to see that movie with an audience. And so I was happy to look back on and just think about those memories. But at the same time, I was getting a little sad because this was about the time, this was originally supposed to be about the time that we would be going back in for that community experience of watching a Marvel movie in a theater, and it was going to be Black Widow. And so on Thursday, April 30th, it was hard not to think about the point that this was originally going to be opening night for Black Widow. And then on May 1st, I'd be going back to see Black Widow again and then be talking about and looking at... The box office performance of the film. And even on a show like this, might be talking about, of course, the spoiler review for the film itself, but then also how it performed on its overall domestic opening weekend, global opening weekend at the box office. And I love talking about all of that stuff and celebrating these films because they're usually good and they're usually successful. So they deserve the success that we often see them uh, enjoy. So it would have been nice to be able to talk about all of that kind of stuff. And so because I can't do that, because there is no Black Widow movie to discuss. Yet, I still want to talk about Black Widow, and I still want to talk about Natasha Romanoff, and there is a scene that we've gone back to as we've been previewing Black Widow and thinking about what that story is going to be. Uh, There's one of many scenes that, that have come up time and again as we've talked about it, and I want to discuss that, and it is a scene actually that takes place after the events of this upcoming Black Widow movie. It takes place during Avengers Endgame, and I am going to talk about that later on in the show. But before I get to that, and before I even get into the, uh, the updated Marvel release schedule, I think another part of the reason why I'm feeling a little extra sentimental over the past week, or have been feeling a little extra sentimental over the past week, it's not just about Black Widow, it's not just about Avengers Endgame and Avengers Infinity War. I mean, really, when we look at it historically, for the better part of this current century that we are in, Marvel movies have pretty much been a fixture of the first weekend in May, dating all the way back to 2002. That was where it all started. The first Spider-Man film, once that was released on May 3rd, 2002, that first weekend in May kind of became effectively the home of Marvel movies, or certainly one of the regular homes of Marvel movies, because if you look at it, you get Spider-Man in 2002, X2, X-Men United in 2003, There was no Marvel movie in the first weekend in May in either 2004 or 2005, although there was a Punisher movie on April 16th of 2004. But then you go to 2006, still no Marvel movie on the first weekend in May. Uh, We did have X Men The Last Stand, however, on Memorial Day weekend. But then starting in 2007 with Spider Man 3, we just go on a run of Marvel based movies on the first weekend in May. You have Spider Man 3 in 2007, Iron Man in 2008. X-Men Origins Wolverine in 2009, Iron Man 2 in 2010, Thor in 2011, The Avengers in 2012, Iron Man 3 in 2013, The Amazing Spider-Man 2 in 2014, Avengers Age of Ultron in 2015, Captain America Civil War in 2016, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 in 2017. And then it's a little bit different in 2018 and 2019, although originally, Those movies were supposed to come out the first weekend in May for their respective years, but then they were each moved up a week. So we had Avengers Infinity War last weekend in April in 2018, Avengers Endgame last weekend in April of 2019. But still, when you got to that first weekend in May, we were in the second weekend for these brand new, massive Marvel movies. And a lot of people were still going to see them on those weekends. So it still kind of felt the same as far as Marvel movies effectively kicking off the summer movie season. And as I'm recording this episode, it's Monday, May 4th. And so this is the eighth anniversary of the Avengers. And that's really what we've been having because of that first weekend in May. We've had all these different anniversaries, as we do every year, for all of these different Marvel movies. And just thinking about the impact that so many of these films have been able to make. I mean, Iron Man had its anniversary over the weekend on May 2nd, the 12th anniversary of that film, a movie that just continues to be more and more important, more and more significant in the overall history of superhero-based cinema. I mean, it was the foundation of the biggest thing that ever happened in superhero-based cinema with the, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You have Iron Man building that foundation in 2008, and then you have The Avengers, which was really, that was the movie that showed that the MCU had fully arrived, because of course it had unprecedented success that was so far above and beyond what any of the phase one films had done before it with, of course, The Avengers being the culmination of phase one of the MCU, it opened over $200 million domestic, the first film to ever do that. The first Marvel movie to go over a billion dollars at the global box office finished over $1.5 billion, and that total of over $1.5 billion was actually a record. That was the highest-grossing superhero-based movie for six years until Avengers Infinity War eventually passed it, when Avengers Infinity War was on its way to over $2 billion at the global box office. And then, of course, you have Avengers Endgame, going on to become the highest grossing film of all time. But Avengers was such a significant film within the MCU and the overall history of the superhero movie genre. Same thing as Iron Man in its own way. I mean, these are massively important films that just continue to grow in terms of their significance uh, year over year. And my appreciation for each of those films and everything else that we've been treated to in the MCU, it just continues to get uh, deeper and deeper as we go along. And so, of course, I'm thinking a lot about that Today, I'm thinking. A lot, I've been thinking about a lot about that over the course of this past week. And so, even though Black Widow isn't out when we thought it was going to be, we are still eventually going to see it. And I think we can just look back on and, and really cherish the memories we've had over this time of the year in the past, being able to go together to see and experience these Marvel movies. And just thinking about what it was like seeing these movies for the first time in those first weekends in May. I mean, certainly with the Avengers. What an incredible experience it already was for Iron Man. And you've heard me tell these stories before on the Road to Infinity War series. So I'm not gonna go over all of it again now, but those were just really, really special times. And it's great to really think back on those and also look forward to getting back to that type of experience. And the next time we see a Marvel movie in a theater, hopefully it's not the first weekend in May of 2021. Hopefully it's actually, uh, as currently scheduled, the first weekend in November of this year. Now, getting into the updated Marvel Studios release slate, Let's go through everything that we have right now. This is the schedule as of this moment, as of this recording. Black Widow is up first on November 6th of 2020, followed by The Eternals on February 12th, 2021, Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings on May 7th of 2021, and then Spider-Man 3, or the third Marvel Studios co-produced Spider-Man solo film, on November 5th of 2021, Thor Love and Thunder on February 11th of 2022, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness on March 25th, 2022, Black Panther 2 on May 6th, 2022, Captain Marvel 2 on July 8th, 2022. There are other release dates that I will address in a second, but these are the ones that actually have films attached to them. So what changed since last time? Well, the first change was on Spider-Man 3 because that was scheduled for July 16th of next year. It moved to November 5th. And that was a date that had belonged to Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which moved back to March 25th of 2022. And to create a little more space between Doctor Strange and Thor Love and Thunder, that one actually moved up a week. It's now February 11th of 2022. Previously, it was February 18th of that year. No changes to Black Panther 2 on May 6th, 2022. Uh, no change to Captain Marvel 2. And no change since the last one for Black Widow, Eternals, and Shang-Chi in the Legend of the Ten Rings. All of those are still the same, at least for now. And then here are the untitled release dates that Marvel Studios still technically has. They have October 7th of 2022. And then in 2023, they have February 17th, May 5th, July 28th, and November 3rd. Now, going back to that October 7th, 2022 date, that's one that many of us have speculated would be intended for Blade, I don't think that date is actually going to hold, however, because Sony has moved their Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse sequel. They have moved it from April of 2022 to that October 7th, 2022 date. So even though Disney and Marvel, they didn't announce dropping that date or moving whatever untitled Marvel movie is scheduled for that date, they didn't announce anything as far as pushing that back or dropping it. But I do think one of those things is going to happen. They are either going to move whatever movie was going to be on that date. And I don't think they, when they booked that date, it was for a Disney Marvel release. It wasn't for a Sony one. So it's not the same as Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse 2. So there was a Marvel Studios movie intended for that October 7th, 2022 date. I do think that's just going to move or it's going to go away. And then they'll just work off of the dates they already have in 2023 and then go forward and book new dates for 2024 and on down the line. I don't think we're going to see a Marvel Studios movie coming out the same weekend that Sony is putting out Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse 2. I just don't think that's going to happen at all. That's not likely. So we're probably just going to see Marvel and Disney moving off of that date and letting Sony have it. But that really leads to one of the takeaways that I have from all of these changes, and that is the cooperation between Disney slash Marvel and Sony Pictures, because all of this really happened in conjunction as far as these moves. As soon as Sony announced that Spider-Man 3 was moving from July 16th of next year to November 5th, Disney followed with an announcement that Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was moving back to March of 2022, and they were moving Thor Love and Thunder up a week. So all of these things happened, and of course the timing was so close that you know that it would have been coordinated, and you know that I'm sure Sony and Marvel Studios and Disney, they were all talking about this just in terms of being able to make Spider-Man 3. And when could they even get that film out? Because Disney is also co-financing the film and sharing in 30% of it. So all of this would have been coordinated between these studios. And it's just good to see them working together and coming up with whatever plan they have now for this release schedule, as well as the production schedule. Although all of this stuff is, of course, subject to change. But I like seeing that kind of cooperation between these two studios. And because of that, That's why I think this whole thing was very, very cooperative. And so that's why I expect that Disney and Marvel Studios, whatever they were planning for that October 7th, 2022 date, even though they haven't officially removed it from their schedule, I think eventually they will. I think that's just a formality at this point. But I like seeing that cooperation from these studios, particularly after everything that happened last year. I mean, Disney and Marvel had a falling out with Sony Pictures. There was a trial separation. It didn't look like they were going to be sharing Spider-Man anymore. And then eventually, after about a month or so, the two sides got back together, and now Spider-Man is staying in the MCU. So seeing them work together on this to uh, make space for each other on the release calendar, I think that's a very good sign. And hopefully that means that there will continue to be a good relationship between everyone involved here. So that way Spider-Man can stay in the MCU, not just for one more solo movie and then one more eventual MCU team-up, which is on the books right now. We don't know what movie that is, but we know that Spider-Man gets to be in one more Disney-distributed Marvel Studios film uh, after this third Spider-Man solo movie. But hopefully we continue to see Spider-Man being shared by these studios uh, for many years to come. And so I like seeing anything that suggests they have a positive working relationship. and that is. What, we've, what we're seeing with the updates to this release schedule. Now, another thing to take a look at is really 2022 and how we are going to have four Marvel movies within the span of just under five months with Thor Love and Thunder starting it on February 11th, 2022, followed by Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness on March 25th, Black Panther 2 on May 6th, and then Captain Marvel 2 on July 8th. That is a lot of Marvel. And I'm certainly beyond the point of really questioning the audience's appetite for Marvel movies or Marvel Studios content, MCU content. Anytime we've seen Marvel Studios increase their output, audiences have been there for it. So it's not like I have a lot of doubt here, and even though I said I'm beyond questioning it, maybe I'm gonna question it just a tiny bit here. I don't think this is a bad idea as far as releasing this many Marvel movies so close together. I I do understand that there might be a lot of reasons why These movies still have to come out in this order that they're in, and I will talk about that in a second. But I do think this is going to be a fairly significant test of the audience's appetite. Again, audiences are hungry for Marvel Studios. They are hungry for the MCU. But four movies in the span of just under five months is a lot. And maybe it won't really matter. I mean, One qualifier that I should throw in with all of this is that... We don't know what theatrical windows are going to look like. I mean, we normally assume 90 days because that's the industry standard. That's certainly what theaters expect going forward. And they will yell at you if you're universal and it doesn't look like you plan to respect that going forward. So based on that traditional theatrical model, this seems like a lot. But then maybe if we see, depending on what happens with theaters, we don't know how consumer behavior is going to change. We don't really know what that picture looks like. And we can't know until we are actually able to start going back to theaters and we start seeing how audiences respond to all of this. But maybe it ultimately leads to shorter theatrical windows anyway, and it doesn't really matter that you have four Marvel movies coming out in the span of five months. We really don't know. But if we're just looking at it in terms of the the audience interest, I think the interest is going to be there. I, I do think that audiences would be still be very inclined to see Marvel movies, even four Marvel movies in five months, it's not really the appetite that I worry about as much as just the budget. Four trips to the theater in the span of five months is actually kind of a lot, because a lot most people out there who are going to movies, the average moviegoer, I mean, they only go see a handful of movies for the entire year, let alone a handful of movies all within the span of less than half of a year. That might be a little bit too much, and they might just be forced to make a decision as far as, well, we wanna go see all four of these movies, but maybe we can only afford to go see three of them. And one of these movies has to be The Odd Man Out. That's just the way that it might work in terms of budget. Or the other issue is that if people like going to see these movies multiple times, maybe they can't afford as many repeat viewings because they gotta make sure that they have the funds to go see all of these movies one time. And I know there are things that help with that. AMCA list and various other subscription programs. So maybe that will help alleviate some of these issues. But in terms of even outside of the appetite, which I think is there, the time and the money to go see these movies so close to one another, it may force people to eliminate one from their list and just be willing to wait on that film and maybe pass on it in the theater and then just catch it on digital, on VOD, Disney Plus or wherever after the fact. And so if one of these movies though is gonna be the odd one out, if there's going to be one of these movies that gets bumped off of people's lists as far as going to the theater, I think the movie that I would worry about the most is actually Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And the reason for that is simply because Doctor Strange as, an, as a franchise doesn't have the buzz right now that the other three do. I know Thor wasn't necessarily the biggest solo franchise for Marvel in the early days with Thor, although it actually did fairly well. Second highest grossing, or I'm sorry, third highest grossing solo film, in phase one, did better than Captain America, the first Avenger, obviously better than the Incredible Hulk. And so Thor was doing pretty well, but then didn't get the same level of Avengers bump in phase two as Iron Man did with from Iron Man 2 to Iron Man 3 or Cap did from the first Avenger to Captain America, the Winter Soldier. But we saw this franchise re-energized in 2017 with Thor Ragnarok, and that film made over $800 million worldwide. But then just as important as Thor: Ragnarok is when you see Thor's appearances in Infinity War and Endgame, two of the highest-grossing films of all time, and including Endgame, the highest-grossing film of all time, and people loved Thor in those movies. And all of that really started with the reimagining that Taika Waititi brought to the character and brought to the franchise in Thor Ragnarok. And so I think even for people who didn't go see Thor Ragnarok in theaters, I think they caught up with it, whether that was before or after they saw Infinity War and or Endgame, but I think people are really excited about and ready for another Taika Waititi directed Thor movie. And of course, Chris Hemsworth back in the role. So I think Thor Love and Thunder is going to do very well. Before all of this happened, I would have said that, and I did say, I thought Thor Love and Thunder was going to be a billion dollar movie, and maybe it still is. I'm just not sure yet if there are billion dollar movies that are still going to happen at any point in the foreseeable future. But whatever the the top level is, wherever the ceiling is at for blockbuster movies going forward, I think Thor, Love and Thunder is gonna be right at that ceiling. I think it's gonna be in the top tier of box office performers in 2022. So I have no worries about that one. Plus it helps that that's the first one. There's a three month break between Spider-Man 3 and Thor, Love and Thunder. So audiences will be ready for Love and Thunder. I also think audiences are gonna be ready for Black Panther because that first film is the highest grossing solo superhero movie of all time and easily the most successful franchise debut of all time. So people are ready for that Black Panther sequel. That's going to do incredibly well. And then we go to Captain Marvel 2, another franchise just like Black Panther, not to the same extent in terms of total box office gross, but like Black Panther, made over a billion dollars in the first film in its individual franchise that's extraordinary, and I do think that people really like Captain Marvel and or love the movie, and are going to be ready to go back and see the sequel. So I really don't have any concerns when it comes to Thor: Love and Thunder, Black Panther, and Captain Mar- Black Panther Two and Captain Marvel Two. I think all of those are just fine. And probably gonna make, even though these movies are fairly close together, I think all of them are gonna make about what they would make even if they had more, uh, even if they were space farther apart. And the same thing could be true of Doctor Strange and the multiverse of madness. I'm not trying to make a prediction out there that the movie is not gonna perform very well. I still think the movie is going to perform very, very well in March slash April of 2022, since it's coming out toward the end of the month. I think it's going to do very well, but if there's one movie out of these four that maybe isn't going to do quite as well as it would have if it had a little more space to itself, then I do think that movie would be Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. That said, I, I think what we would ultimately be talking about is a difference that wouldn't that probably wouldn't be that significant because with Doctor Strange, even though the first film it wasn't the type of franchise debut, the the triumphant success, the runaway success as a franchise debut as Black Panther or Captain Marvel, and not even quite to the extent of something like Guardians of the Galaxy in 2014, Doctor Strange was still a very successful, well-reviewed movie, and that helps. But I think what helps even more is that people really liked Doctor Strange in Avengers Infinity War, Endgame as well, but he had a smaller part in that movie. So I think with everybody loving Doctor Strange in Avengers Infinity War, that certainly increases the demand, the appetite for his solo franchise, but it's still not on the level of the other three coming out in that five-month span in 2022, so maybe Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, maybe that one suffers a little bit, but I don't think it would be much, and as I said, I still think it would be a very, very successful movie, but another takeaway related to Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is we've seen this movie, uh, it's shifted twice now, it was going to come out May 7th of 2021, and then it moved to November 5th of 2021, and now it's moved to uh, March 25th of 2022, and it's not just how many months it's moved on the calendar, it's also the movies that it has moved behind. Because before, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was going to be coming out ahead of Spider-Man 3 and ahead of Thor Love and Thunder. It is now behind both of those films, which tells me that, or at least it suggests to me, that there is some amount of flexibility in the MCU timeline. If we're looking at the overall picture of the MCU timeline in phase four, there's probably some flexibility. I don't think Marvel Studios is really compromising these stories in any way. I I don't think that they are completely shifting what order everything happens in. I do think that this is really more of a sign of what tends to already be happening in a lot of these solo movies anyway, in that we don't always know, other than the real-time timeline equivalent that we use for the MCU just as a a baseline, outside of that, we don't always know exactly how close these movies are to each other and in relation to one another amongst these standalone franchises. And so I think there's probably some flexibility. And because the MCU is so far ahead of us, just going back to that real-life timeline that we use to kind of measure the MCU, a lot of that is thrown off because the MCU is currently years ahead of us in the timeline. If we go by the last movie, Spider-Man Far From Home, I know a lot of people look at Endgame and they say we're in 2023 in the MCU, but presumably we are actually in 2024 because they say in Spider-Man Far From Home that the movie is taking place eight months after the events of Avengers Endgame, and it's the end of a school year now, unless they completely realigned the school year uh, after the blip and everything, which I don't think they did because everybody's still talking about summer. So if it's still summer at the end of a school year that's eight months after Endgame, then yes, we are in summer 2024, uh, at least for Spider-Man Far From Home. And so that puts us four years ahead of the MCU now is still four years ahead of us in terms of our actual timeline. And we don't know how all of these stories are are going to line up with one another, but maybe what's actually happening now is all these stories are happening closer together. Maybe they are concurrent with one another and there could be a lot more overlap because the MCU is so far ahead of our actual timeline. So maybe Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness, it doesn't really matter if it comes out before or after Spider-Man 3 or before or after Thor Love and Thunder. Maybe that doesn't matter at all because all of these stories are happening around the same time anyway. I think that's very much a possibility for the MCU. And so it's probably, there's probably not really any creative compromise as far as Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness having to move almost now back a full year from its original release date, May 7th, 2021, now to March 25th, 2022, and also having two other Marvel movies now jump ahead of it in line. It doesn't really seem like that's going to be much of an issue. The one thing I would say though, from a timeline perspective for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, is now there is a lot more space between Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and two Disney Plus series that are supposed to tie into it. WandaVision, which is still at the moment, and I'll talk about Disney Plus, but WandaVision still at the moment, scheduled to premiere on Disney Plus in December of this year. Loki was uh, supposed to be a spring 2021 release. Don't know if that's still going to happen because, of course, production was suspended on that one. So I'm not sure how far, uh, I'm not sure when exactly we're going to see Loki. But when you think about how all of this was originally announced, you had Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness May 7th, 2021. You had WandaVision and Loki both spring 2021 on Disney Plus, and they were supposed to tie in. And I still think they are tying directly into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So all of that was happening at around the same time. We would watch WandaVision, we would watch Loki, and then we would go see Doctor Strange. And even when WandaVision moved up to December, that still put it within a handful of months of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So it was still pretty close. But now, if WandaVision still premieres in December of this year, it's going to be almost a year and a half, or maybe a little less than that, depending on when the last uh, episode of WandaVision airs, uh, which would probably sometime in January of 2021. So then you've got a year and a couple months until Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So is that space going to impact the story? I mean, I guess not, because if you really want to, you can rewatch WandaVision on Disney Plus and, and be ready for that direct tie-in to Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I think what might be interesting to see, though, if if Marvel Studios wants to try and manage how we're building to these things, and maybe it's going to be necessary anyway because they can't continue uh, making the show right now, maybe what they do is they move Loki back, which, again, they might have to do anyway, but move Loki back uh, a little bit farther into 2021 So that way it can kind of be the midpoint. WandaVision, wait several months. Loki, wait several months. And then Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. If you're just looking at these three projects specifically uh, together within the MCU, maybe that's how they manage it. And it also solves a problem of maybe not being able to have Loki ready for spring of 2021 anyway. Another thing that I think is worth calling out with this updated release schedule is that Black Panther 2 and Captain Marvel 2 have not moved that Disney and Marvel Studios would rather have four Marvel movies in the span of five months, uh, that they would rather have that in 2022 than move Black Panther 2 and or Captain Marvel 2, because that would have been one potential way of solving that issue if they really wanted to to accommodate Sony needing to move, and Disney, because they're a partner in this, Sony and Disney needing to move Spider-Man 3, if they wanted to just slide the rest of the schedule back They could have. They could have just moved Doctor Strange to February and then given Thor Love and Thunder the May date, and it would have been just fine there. And then they could have given Black Panther 2, they could have moved that movie to July and then just slid back Captain Marvel to some other date later on in 2022. I mean, they could have done something like that if they wanted to, but they did not move Black Panther 2 or Captain Marvel 2. And I think that's very interesting. What it says to me is that These are the movies that, of course, I mean, there's certain significance to these summer release dates that you have these big, uh, these major franchise sequels. And so you know that summer is a more competitive time of year. So you want to have the franchises that are going to stand above the crowd as best as possible on those summer release weekends. That makes sense. But I don't really know that that's it because they're not afraid of having Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, a brand new franchise. They're not afraid of having that come out in the first weekend in May of next year. So I don't really think it's about competition. I just think this is the line where that Marvel Studios wants to hold. And I don't think they want to move anything back. I think that was another thing that maybe they could have done is if it doesn't matter that Doctor Strange moves behind Spider-Man 3 and Thor Love and, uh, and Thor Love and Thunder, does it matter if it moves behind Black Panther 2? Does it matter if it moves behind Captain Marvel 2 if you want to keep those as summer releases? And I wonder if maybe in that case, it actually does matter. The fact that Black Panther 2 uh, which has never moved, actually. In, in any of these release schedule updates for Marvel Studios, Black Panther 2 has not moved. Captain Marvel 2 didn't originally have a release date, but it, it but it got announced when they did the initial reshuffling earlier last month, and now it's staying there even after this latest adjustment. Captain Marvel 2 staying where it's at, staying put just like Black Panther 2. And that has me wondering, though, about the significance of these two films, not just in terms of how uh, how big these franchises are for audiences, But that's the point where, in my mind, maybe this is where the timeline really matters, and this is where the order of these movies matters, is that there's some flexibility for some of these Phase 4 movies, and flexibility with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, but Black Panther 2 and or Captain Marvel 2, these could be the movies that tell the stories that are so significant to the overall structure of the MCU that anything that was originally intended to come out before these films still needs to happen before these films because in one one or both of these movies, Black Panther 2 or Captain Marvel 2, there are going to be things that happen that really change the overall MCU. And everything, every story that's told after that has to take these stories, Black Panther 2 and Captain Marvel 2, into account. That's something that I've been wondering about as the schedule changed again, but we saw no changes to Captain Marvel 2 or Black Panther 2. Shifting from the big screen over to Disney+, Plus, we haven't really had, even though we've had these announcements, we've had these release date changes announced for the movies, we haven't heard anything yet about the Disney+, Plus series, but we do have some potential, we have at least one potential update on one of the Disney+, Plus series, and that's The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So Sebastian Stan recently did an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, and one of the things he was asked about was just the status of production on The Falcon and Winter Soldier, which we know is currently suspended. And while Stan said not to quote him, they did it anyway because it was an interview. So Stan said that there were about two to three weeks of production left when everything was shut down. So as far as we know today, The Falcon and Winter Soldier is still scheduled for its premiere on Disney Plus in August of this year. We don't know if that's early August. We don't know if that's late August. I'm guessing it would probably be late August at this point, if it even makes it onto Disney Plus in August of this year. So, 2 to 3 weeks of production that's left, that's not an insignificant amount of time, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Falcon and Winter Soldier is going to have to be pushed. It's really contingent upon when they can actually get back to production, when they can actually finish making the show. Because if there's 2 to 3 weeks left of production, but everything that they still need to shoot is part of the last one or two episodes, then in theory, if they know, if they already know and they actually have dates when they can actually go back and finish making the show, and I don't think they have that yet, but if they actually get that and they get that in time, then they could make the determination to figure out, do we think we could finish production and do all the posts on everything that we haven't shot yet? Can we get all of that done in time to where if we started airing episode one, if we premiered episode one of The Falcon and Winter Soldier in August, by the time we needed to air episode five and or six, could we be ready, even if we had a delayed production period, could we just start airing it and then finish the show as it's, and then finish actually making the last episodes as we're already starting to drop some of the episode, the initial episodes on Disney Plus? Can we actually do that? And the answer to that is potentially yes, but it depends on when they can go shoot because they can be doing post-production right now on everything they've already shot. They can be doing the editing and the visual effects But what would really mess up the schedule, though, is if the well, two things, of course, if they can't start production uh, anytime soon, then that's going to impact the Falcon Winter Soldier. I think one of the things they would want to avoid is dropping, let's just say three or four episodes of the Falcon Winter Soldier on Disney. Plus, they actually start giving us episodes and then they have to stop at the middle of the season or they have to stop just before the last one or two episodes and leave us with a to be continued. And we don't know when it's going to continue because we don't know when we're going to be able to finish the last two episodes. I don't think they want that. I th- they, I'm not saying they need to have every single episode, all six episodes, completely done and finished before they start premiering the first one. But I think you would still have to know that you would be able to finish the last episode or two within a few weeks of dropping, premiering the first episode on Disney+. Plus. So I think for The Falcon and Winter Soldier, it's all contingent upon them being able to know when they are actually gonna be able to finish the series. And so maybe that means they'll still be able to make an August premiere date on Disney Plus, but maybe it's going to have to move back slightly. We really don't know. And then, as far as WandaVision, as I said before, some of the issues with having it be uh, there with having more space between WandaVision and Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, maybe that's a non-issue because maybe WandaVision isn't going to be ready for December of this year. But we've yet to hear about any delays to the Disney Plus series. And I even saw a recent uh, ad for Disney Plus that still showed the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision arriving in 2020, so Disney is still planning on premiering these series in 2020, but maybe the dates uh, shift a little bit, but I also think, though, as far as Disney not announcing any delay to those series, it doesn't mean they won't be delayed. We already know that Disney has been waiting, as many studios have, they've been waiting to announce delays until they absolutely have to, and August is still far enough away for The Falcon and Winter Soldier, and December is very far away for WandaVision. That they don't have to announce delays to those yet. If they get once they get to a point where they know they're not going to be able to make those premiere dates, that's when they announce uh, that they would have to have a delay. So the lack of an announcement doesn't mean anything in terms of increased or decreased likelihood that these series are still going to premiere when we were originally told that they were that they would. We really don't know, but we do know all of the potential factors that might prevent that from happening. But getting back to Wandavision in December of 2020. I think that one, I don't know how much production was left on that one, but I think it was pretty close because they already had a wrap party. And while wrap parties can be held before you literally finish every single shot of principal photography, it does mean that you are near the end. And so I think WandaVision is almost done. And so if they could get back into production for whatever amount they have to finish, and, and I don't know how much it is, but if it's a week, maybe two of production left on WandaVision, if they can get back in and, and shoot that material anytime within the next five to six months, they should still be able, assuming that they're working on everything they've already shot, and they can finish all of that stuff uh, remotely, assuming all of that's happening, if they can get in and do the last couple, however long they have a production, if, assuming it's two weeks or less, if they can start doing that within the next five to six months, then they actually could potentially, and the material that, that they still need to shoot, assuming that material is also from the last one or two episodes of the series. And the reason I say that for Falcon and Winter Soldier and WandaVision is you can't really carry that as an assumption for movies because they shoot out of sequence, but series tend to shoot more in sequence. But I don't know if that's true for these Disney Plus shows. So I'll, I'll just call that out as, you know, it's based on that assumption that whatever material is left is just from the last one or two episodes. So if that's the case for WandaVision and they can start shooting that within the next five to six months, then potentially they could make their December premiere date just fine because they could premiere the first episode at whatever point in December. And by the time the episodes five and six would come up, uh, they would be able to finish everything that they shot. If they went back into production in September or October, or even perhaps as late as November, they could in theory finish WandaVision. And we may not necessarily see a delay to that show. I'd be actually probably a little more worried about the Falcon Winter Soldier then I would be WandaVision. But it really just depends on how much shooting is actually left for each series. And maybe what they're going to be doing now is rewriting some of this material to reduce the uh, the amount of shoot days that are going to be left. I, I don't really know how they're going to do that. And hopefully, I mean, I really wouldn't want these shows to be creatively impacted. I would rather they take the time to give these shows what they need to have, but certain adjustments may be necessary regardless. So We'll just have to see how it all shakes out with the Disney Plus series. As far as everything else, uh, Loki, of course, had its production suspended. So we don't know what the status of that series is and whether or not it's going to be able to make its spring 2021 premiere date on Disney Plus. But with that one, I mean, we don't even have a specific month that we were supposed to see that series. So even if it was intended for March and they push it back to May, it's still technically spring. So maybe it's a non-issue for Loki in 2021. It really just depends on them being able to get back to work. And that's where a lot of the other series are at, because these are the ones that had actually started production. Everything else that's coming up, they hadn't started production yet. So when you think about Hawkeye and and What If, work on What If, the animated one is actually continuing uh, remotely right now. So, so far, it doesn't look like there are changes to What If. But for the other live action series, whether that's Hawkeye or Moon Knight or She-Hulk, they've been continuing to work on these series and they've been writing the scripts for these episodes. And so all of that has been happening while, uh, while everyone's been in quarantine. All of that has still occurred, and I'm sure there's a certain amount of pre-production that they can continue remotely, but eventually they're going to get to a point where they actually need people to physically be in the space to build sets, to work on the sound stages, and to actually go shoot the shows that's gonna have to happen at some point and we don't know when that's going to be. And so that really goes into one of the last points here about this updated release schedule is it is still subject to change. It's nice that we have this plan and we can start looking forward to some of these projects on these dates, but we know that none of this is set in stone and all of it is based on being able to get back in for Marvel Studios and Disney and everybody to get back on set and start making these shows and making these movies again, but we still don't know exactly when that's going to happen. And so depending on these delays, and there's different reports about when people, and, and none of it by the way, is uh, can really be taken as the absolute truth of the way things are going to go down. All anybody can really do is speculate at this point because everything is uh, pretty fluid in terms of when things are gonna be opened up again, when it's gonna be safe, when everybody's gonna feel ready to go back to sets and start making these projects again and actually start with physical production on all of these things. We don't know exactly when all of that's going to happen and there's been different talk and speculation about maybe it could start production uh, could resume on some of these projects in uh, by the middle of this summer or late summer. Some people think maybe it could be the fall. Some people think that for bigger movies they might not be able to resume production until January of next year. I mean nobody really knows how all of this is going to go right now and depending on how long it takes to get back to production on some of these We could see these projects move again. We could see additional delays to some of these movies, to some of these Disney Plus series. We really don't know. But the one last and final thing, I swear I'm going to be done with this topic in just a second here, or not a second, probably a minute or two um, or eight. But one last thing that I would call out here with all of this, though, about Marvel Studios and even Sony and everybody else right now, I do like that they are being patient. At least that's what I am seeing in in all of this is I am seeing patience as far as being willing to push these projects back, not worrying so much about uh, keeping original release dates and all of that. I think it's a good sign to see that they are willing to push these things back. And some of that, I know they have no choice because they literally won't be able to finish in time for these original dates, but I do still see some patience being shown. And I like that because I think that the temptation would be, and it's, it's very obvious, it'd be very natural to just feel like once you can finally start making this stuff, let's hurry up and make it and get it out as soon as we can because we're not making money right now and we need to make money as fast as we can. So that means getting all of these projects into theaters and on Disney Plus, let's have it all happen just as soon as we possibly can because we really need to start making money again. I understand all of that and, and I understand all of the business motivations for that. But I like seeing the patience because really what's going to bring the business back is not just theaters being open, but the quality still has to be there for the content. And it seems like Disney and Marvel Studios and even Sony are recognizing that with these Marvel franchises right now. And that is, I think, a positive sign. Uh, We don't have a whole lot of positive signs right at the moment, but that's certainly one that I think is worth taking away from all of this with these continued updates to the Marvel Studios release schedule. And maybe, uh, and we actually probably haven't seen our last update to the Marvel Studios release schedule. But for now, this is the plan, and this is what we can go off of. Okay, now the last thing that I want to do on this week's podcast is I want to do something that is very much in the spirit of, and I'm even using the same name, as an exclusive podcast that we have on the Patreon that started just this year once a month I do a series called Marvelous Moments, where I highlight a moment or a scene or a set of scenes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that I just consider special, that I consider marvelous for whatever reason, whether it's because the scene all by itself is just that good, or maybe that's in combination with how the movie sets up things in the MCU or how it pays off things that have previously happened in the MCU. And we've done a few of those episodes. It's one a month, And so far, I've done episodes highlighting the last conversation between Vision and Ultron in Avengers Age of Ultron, in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, the scenes between Rocket and Yondu. And then I've also done two scenes for Avengers Endgame, and I actually had a couple of our patrons joining me for those. Tom DeMichael joined me to talk about Steve Rogers' whatever it takes speech from Avengers Endgame, and then David Rosen joined me For the April episode, we talked about Steve passing the shield to Sam and a lot more uh, that's going on in that scene from Avengers Endgame. So it's been a really fun series to just dive deep into some of these incredible moments that we have been given by the MCU. And so I wanted to do that for Natasha. I wanted to do that for Black Widow because I don't get to do a spoiler review for her first ever solo movie yet. I'm several months away from being able to do that. But what I can do now is talk about this incredible character and a huge part of the journey that she's been on in the MCU that I think really feeds into, even though I'm gonna talk about a scene from Avengers Endgame, I think it still feeds into her overall character arc and really helps us, I think, with our perspective going into her solo film. So I am gonna talk about that. But before I do, just wanna say thank you very much. Speaking of our Patreon, To Janet R., Kevin L., Matthew, Jennifer D., Joseph O., Jessica R., and Brandon S., they are some of the patrons over at patreon.com slash Marvel Studios News who support the show, and their contributions allow us to make all kinds of additional content like that Marvelous Moment series, and this one I decided I want to go ahead and share it with everybody, and so I'll do a Marvelous Moment now for Black Widow on the main podcast, but you can get more of this kind of stuff over on the Patreon and all kinds of other exclusives on the Patreon. And you actually do get, uh, if you subscribe, you do get your own Patreon exclusive RSS feed, uh, your own private RSS feed that you can put into a podcatcher like Apple Podcasts and get all of your Marvel Studios news content, all of those podcasts, the main show, as well as the Patreon exclusives. It's all in one place. And after this episode, I'll be doing a Patreon credit scene, uh, which is a little additional topic that we usually discuss after the main episodes. And so I'm going to be talking about Becky Lynch potentially from WWE, Becky Lynch potentially joining the MCU. That's going to be on the Patreon credit scene that is attached to this episode. And we also have a Patreon-exclusive Discord community where we just get together pretty much every day and we chat about Marvel. We do it with text chat, but then we also have watch parties where we do voice chat, talking about these films, and just sharing our love and enthusiasm for all of these stories. So I certainly invite you to join us over there. And for more information on all of the Patreon exclusives we offer, please visit patreon.com slash Marvel Studios News. But for the Marvelous Moments series, I've been very happy uh, doing those shows because it's a lot of fun for me to explore the MCU and really do these deep dives into these scenes. But I'm going to go ahead and do one now for Avengers Endgame, for Black Widow, for Natasha Romanoff, and her incredible heroic sacrifice on Vormir. So as you know, in Avengers Endgame in 2014, after they'd gone back in time and dropped off uh, Rhodey and Nebula on Morag, Clint and Natasha... Went. they took the benatar and they went to vormir and they went to get the they had to retrieve the soul stone and while nebula knew that they had to go to get the soul stone she didn't know what was required all she knew was that thanos and gamora went to vormir and got the soul stone gamora didn't come back she didn't know the price for the soul stone she didn't actually know about the everlasting exchange but getting back to uh natasha and clint since natasha is really our focus here but i think her relationship with clint says a lot about her as a character and really helps inform the scene and all as well as her standalone film so what we see as far as how the scene begins it's really just more about establishing the credibility of the stonekeeper establishing the credibility of these rules because we have red skull the stonekeeper saying the name of natasha's father ivan and that means something to to natasha because as she says she didn't even know her father's name but of course Red Skull could have thrown out any name. And uh, since Natasha didn't know her father's name, he could have thrown out any name. So that's not really the, that's not what fully establishes the credibility of the exchange that is required for the Soul Stone. We see Natasha just putting things together in her head. She puts together, she does the math. Thanos left Vormir with the Soul Stone and without his daughter Gamora. So that just shows that this is it. This is the price that someone really has to be sacrificed. You really must sacrifice that which you love. So for Clint and Natasha there, one of them is going to have to go over the edge. And she just goes into one of those recurring, I mean, I talked about Steve Rogers' speech, uh, but it was a recurring theme in the movie. And of course, uh, a a huge theme that also continued on from Avengers Infinity War. And one of the taglines for Avengers Endgame, Natasha, after she reaches this conclusion that one of them is going to have to die. And really in her mind, she's already reached the decision that she's going to be the one to die. She says, whatever it takes, and Clint repeats that phrase back to her. And then Natasha just puts it on the line. If we don't get the stone, if we don't get that stone, billions of people stay dead. And then Clint says, it says that, well, we both know who it's got to be. And Natasha says, I guess we do. And then Clint says, of course, that he's starting to think they mean different people. And obviously they do. Because when you put these two best friends in this scenario, neither one of them is going to feel like the other one should be the person to die, should be the person to be sacrificed. Natasha is not going to feel like her friend Clint should be the one to die, nor is Clint going to feel like Natasha should be the one to die. And I think that's easy enough for us to understand and accept as an audience that these are noble, heroic figures, and it's just in their nature to want to be the ones to sacrifice themselves rather than asking that sacrifice of their best friend. So that's easy enough for us to get. But I think where it gets more emotionally complex and really informs more of Natasha's journey at this point in the MCU and her last moments, at least as of this point uh, in the MCU, is really her. It's really more of what she says uh, as they have this debate. And Natasha talks about how for the last five years, she's been trying to do one thing to get to right here. And that's all it's been about bringing everybody back. And we saw that. We saw that weighing on Natasha when she was the one running the meeting in Avengers Endgame at the compound. She was the one still holding on to this idea of the Avengers family, even though she was somebody who throughout her journey actually resisted. She was very reluctant to actually have any sort of emotional intimacy or attachments to other people. I mean, she resisted the idea and didn't really want to invest in an actual friendship with actual trust with Steve Rogers in Captain America, The Winter Soldier. And she actually was able to get to that point and and accept that friendship and actually embrace and enjoy that at the end of The Winter Soldier, and then took another step with a different type of relationship, a romantic relationship with Banner in Avengers Age of Ultron. And even though that didn't work out, Natasha was still very much uh, into the idea now of actually embracing the idea of family. That was something that Natasha had previously resisted, but was able to accept. She did have a friendship with Clint uh, that dated back before Captain America, The Winter Soldier. But I think even with that, Clint was more of the exception than the rule for Natasha, in that this was somebody she felt a certain kinship with because he actually saved her life. He was sent to kill her and made a different call. And so I I think there was a different type of dynamic between Natasha and Clint that she wasn't necessarily going to embrace with anyone else. And then eventually she did that. So we had this character who resisted the idea of family, who ended up being the one to hold the family together as hard as she could in Avengers Endgame, and now we get to this point where we see it here on Vormir, where she loves this family so much, this family that she didn't know she wanted, that she didn't know she needed, she now loves this family so much that she is willing to sacrifice literally everything in order to get them all back, and I know that she cares about everybody else in the universe that Thanos took out, but more specifically, she's thinking about the members of the family who are gone, and getting the family back together uh, is more important than her actually being there to enjoy it. It's it, it's a much deeper and almost more meaningful uh, way of how she talks about that, how she says that phrase in Captain America: Civil War when she says to Steve after Peggy's funeral that staying together is more important than how they stay together. I don't think I got the line totally right, but her main thing was keeping the family together. That's the goal, even if it means we have to compromise in certain things. And this is just a much bigger example of that where. Keeping the family together or getting the family together is more important than even Natasha being alive to still be a member of the family, to still enjoy being a member of the family. And so that's a really big thing for Natasha to say and for Natasha to express. And even Clint, just to really kind of echo the idea that maybe is in the audience's mind of that cynicism with respect to Natasha, that isn't this the character who resisted this kind of stuff before? Even Clint says, and not that he's really doubting her, but he, he does say, don't you get all decent on me now? And Natasha's response is perfect. What, you think I want to do it? I'm trying to save your life, you idiot. And that line, while it's kind of funny and it's a little, it, it breaks a little bit of the tension in the scene, not a lot, and it certainly doesn't undercut or undermine the heavy emotion of the scene, it is still very important because one of the interpretations of this scene that I don't really agree with talking about the, the Red and Natasha's ledger. And I've heard other people, uh, you know, have that interpretation. And I get where they're coming from because the Red and Natasha's ledger has been a big part of her story since the first Avengers film and her conversation with Loki. But when she says, you think I want to do it? I'm trying to save your life, you idiot. That to me, as well as another line that I'll get to, but that signals what this is about for Natasha, but also what it isn't about. I don't think this is about the red in Natasha's ledger. I don't think Natasha feels like she has something to make up for in this scene. This is really just more of a whatever it takes moment. She's not thinking that she deserves to die. Neither one of them deserves to die. And Natasha knows that. She knows that this isn't about her deserving to die or Clint deserving to die. It's all about what they want and what it's going to cost. What they want is the soul stone to bring everybody back what it's going to cost them is one of their lives. They don't deserve to die, but that's what it's going to take in order to get the Soul Stone. Because even when Clint says, just to further that point, Clint says, Natasha, you know what I've done, you know what I've become, and then she responds with, oh, I don't judge people by their worst mistakes, And and then Clint says, maybe you should, and then she says, you didn't. But that previous line about not judging people by their worst mistakes, that's so critical for Natasha because I think it's not just her forgiving Clint or her saying that she's not going to judge Clint by what he did as Ronan in response to losing all of his family. She's not judging him by that, but I also think that she has learned not to judge herself anymore by her worst mistakes because she was forgiven even before she forgave herself when she even highlights to Clint uh, about when he says maybe you should as in maybe you should be judging people by their worst mistakes, she says you didn't Clint was able to look beyond Natasha's mistakes, and that was actually the beginning of their friendship. And now Natasha is at this point where she's returning that favor to Clint, but I think she's already returned that favor to herself. I think that is why there is, or there seems to have been, a change in Natasha. If we look at how she was struggling internally with everything that was going on in Captain America Civil War and the journey that she's been on from having to wipe out the red in her ledger and to finding out what exactly that means what does it mean to be on the right side? So instead of being an assassin, I'm going to go work for S.H.I.E.L.D. and I'm going to be a spy, but maybe I have to assassinate people sometimes there. But at least it seems like I'm on the right side and I get to be with these superheroes and the Avengers and then come to find out that S.H.I.E.L.D. is infiltrated by Hydra. So maybe some of the missions that I've been on as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent that maybe I've still been doing evil and just didn't know. And so I can't just I I can't define my morality by whose side I'm on, by the team that I'm on, except for maybe the Avengers, because I love this family and everybody here seems to be okay. And that's why she wanted to keep that family together so desperately in Civil War. And she wanted to be on the right side of things. She's trying to figure out how to walk the right moral path uh, to, uh, to help make up for everything that she had done in her past, the red in her ledger. That was the process of trying to wipe that out. But that became very complicated in Civil War because the one thing she did, uh, she had begun to trust was that family of the Avengers and the family was being torn apart. And so that's why we ended up seeing her switching sides is that initially she favored that side of government oversight and accountability with the Accords and with Tony. And then she eventually realized that that wasn't quite working either. And she ultimately sided with Steve and Bucky to let them get away at the end of the airport fight. And that just didn't really work out either because she had her perfectly valid reasons for doing so. And yet Tony questioned it. And Tony's response, even though this was uh, somebody who was supposed to be a friend to Natasha, he just judged her in that moment and then basically told her that she needed to go on the run because everybody was going to be coming for her. And so Natasha was very frustrated by that. She was genuinely, emotionally affected by that moment with Tony. And that's the last time we see her until Avengers Infinity War. But when we see her in Avengers Infinity War, she is in a very different space. She is much more self-assured. And we see that carry through even in Avengers Endgame. She is grief-stricken. She is emotionally devastated to lose the family. And she is willing to do whatever it takes to get everybody back. That is absolutely part of it. But what's not there anymore for Natasha is her questioning the morality of her decisions anymore. She knows what she's doing. She's confident in what she's doing. And she's really focused more at this point on doing the right thing because she knows it's the right thing and she trusts in her heart what the right thing is. It's not so much about, I have to make up for my past. I think she has already resolved her past. And that those lines in Avengers Endgame about how she doesn't want to do it. She's just trying to save Clint's life in this moment because one of them has to die and she wants to save Clint. So he's not going to be the one to die. She would rather be the one to die instead. And so it's not about deserve. It's not about she wants to do this. So she's trying to make up for anything. And I think she cements that idea when she says that she doesn't judge people by their worst mistakes. She's no longer judging herself by her worst mistakes at that moment. She has resolved those issues. She has already resolved the red in her ledger. And I think that happens in the Black Widow solo movie that she is going to confront and deal with her past and move on from it. I think that's gonna be the the emotional center of that film, which is part of the reason why I am so excited to see it. And I think that moment in Avengers Endgame, it's already extraordinary. It's already this beautiful sequence, as painful and tragic as it may be, it's a beautiful scene between these two friends, but I think it's going to have even more meaning. It's gonna be even more emotional after we have seen the Black Widow solo film. And I also really like that, just to continue on and and finish the entire scene, I think Marvel Studios made the right choice because as many of you know, there was an alternate version of the scene and they changed this very late in the process. Originally, it was going to be Clint and Natasha having to fight their way through Thanos and his army so that one of them, and it ended up being Natasha, could actually jump off the cliff and sacrifice herself to get the Soul Stone. I think the way they the decision that they made to change it was absolutely the right call, because this isn't really about the fight. this is about the cost, and this is about these two friends and And, and so allowing it to be this one-on-one, of course, Red skull is there floating around, but really, this one-on-one moment and, and a genuinely emotional moment between these two characters, and also, there's no adrenaline involved in the scene. This is a very conscious decision. Clint and Natasha, both of them wanting to make this sacrifice. And then it's really just a battle to see who's going to be the one to sacrifice themselves and therefore save the other. So there is that part of it, but it's not, it's not the same as an adrenaline fueled battle with the bad guy and his army, and then having to run and jump off the cliff. They each get to make this very conscious decision. I mean, the way before they have their fight, the way they bring their heads together. And, uh, you know, Natasha has made her decision. Clint has made his to sacrifice himself, even though he's pretending that he's going to let Natasha do it. But then we get to everybody gets to make their decision in their own time. And then, of course, they battle it out to see who's going to be the one uh, who wins the opportunity to sacrifice themselves, but really save the other. And it plays out exactly like it should. We already know that Natasha, based on Avengers, that she can beat Clint uh, one on one in a fight. She's the better fighter of the two. And she wins the battle between them, and she's the one who jumps over. But then the way, just going back to that friendship, I mean, it's it's totally Natasha's choice in that she wants to sacrifice herself to save the family, and we understand all of the reasons why, and it's beautiful, but then bringing it back to the one-on-one relationship between these two friends of Natasha having to say, as they're hanging over the cliff, Natasha's saying, let me go, and Clint is just saying, no, no, and then Natasha says, it's okay, and she pushes herself off. But then I love what Clint is doing in this scene and a great performance by Jeremy Renner. And I mean, they're both outstanding in this sequence. I mean, Scarlett Johansson has always been amazing in these movies, and this is right up there among her very best scenes. Her performance is phenomenal. But I also love the moment uh, with Jeremy Renner as Clint, who watches Natasha all the way down. Not out of some morbid curiosity, but that's his friend, and he doesn't want her to die alone. In that moment, so if you watch after Natasha actually pushes herself off, Clint looks down for a while and then turns away, and it's a very harsh turn from Clint. And I think that's because he watched Natasha all the way down just to try and do in in whatever way he could do his best to not allow Natasha to die alone. So he waited until she until she hit until she was killed before he turned away, and then of course he ended up uh, ended up looking back. But I love the way these two friends were here for each other in that moment, as tragic and and terrible as the circumstances were, and I love that each of them were showing their willingness to save half the universe, save the family, but really save one another in terms of both of them wanting to be the ones to make the sacrifice in order to save the other while saving everyone else as well. That scene between Natasha Romanoff and Clint Barton, it's just phenomenal among many phenomenal scenes in Avengers Endgame and throughout the entire Infinity Saga. It's written, directed, and performed beautifully to give Natasha Romanoff the noble ending that she deserves if this is indeed uh, the true and forever end of her in the MCU. And time will eventually tell whether or not uh, that proves to be true. But as far as we know now, that's the end of Natasha Romanoff's story in the MCU. And she got to go out a hero who saved the universe, which would have been more than enough, but I think perhaps most meaningful to Natasha is that she was able to save her family and her best friend in this marvelous moment. And that's where I'm gonna go ahead and wrap up this episode of the Marvel Studios News Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you wanna hear more about these types of marvelous moments, and as I break them down on different podcasts, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash News. And then make sure you follow us in all the places that you can, marvelstudiosnews.com, Facebook and Instagram at marvelstudiosnews, and on Twitter at marvelnewscast. And so for Marvel Studios News, I'm Sean Gerber. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.